You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Is there extraterrestrial life? Is there life on other planets? This is the question we've all been wanting to know, at least since I was a little kid, I wanted to know it. We've already spoken with Professor Avi Loeb once when he wrote his book, Extraterrestrial, about Oumuamua, which he claims is not an asteroid, but actually a device made in a solar system far, far away that's just visiting our solar system. Don't forget the Pentagon, they've admitted to Congress that 144 times in the past 15 years, they've uncovered unidentified aerial phenomena. I'm really interested, of course, are they from some alien civilization? Professor Avi Loeb agreed to come back on and we talk about all the possibilities. Yeah, great. So we can start whenever you want and you can ask me anything and then... Um... Excellent. Excellent. Avi, I enjoyed your article very much in Scientific American. 
uh, a possible link between Oumuamua and unidentified aerial phenomena. So we last time you were on, we discussed your book, Extraterrestrial, excellent book about a phenomena you observed where this meteor or some object was flying through the solar system and it was called Oumuamua and it exhibited unusual behavior that statistically was unlikely unless it was artificially made and not naturally made. Is that a fair one sentence summary? No, um, it, it was not a meteor. It was actually an object that uh, a, a meteor is an object that collides with the earth that burns up in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. This one did not come so close to earth. It was actually at a fraction of the distance to the sun. And uh, we do see such objects. They are called either comets or asteroids, and they are always part of the solar system bound to the sun. But Oumuamua was an object like them that did not come from the solar system. It was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. And uh, it was the first object that we discovered from outside the solar system in the vicinity of Earth. And the reason we knew that is because it was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. When you send out a rocket away from Earth, uh, if you send it fast enough, it escapes the gravitational pull of the Earth. And so the same was true for Oumuamua. It was moving too fast relative to the sun to be bound to the sun. And it's the first object that demonstrated such behavior. And uh, of course, the immediate guess of the astronomers was to say, well, it's just a rock like the rocks we have seen before in the solar system, but it came from another star. And uh, uh, there was already an issue with that because uh, a decade earlier, I wrote a paper uh, forecasting how many rocks we expect from other stars and do we expect the telescope in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua uh, to find a rock from another star. And we calculated that if all other planetary systems are just like the solar system, that uh, this telescope, pan stars, would, would not find anything. Uh, there are just too few of them uh, by a factor of 100 to 100 million for it to, to see anything. So the actual discovery of an interstellar object the size of a football field was a surprise because the mass budget implies that there are many more objects than we would have expected if all systems were similar to the solar system. And um, so that was a surprise, but still astronomers said, okay, well, maybe we just uh, do not really know much about the production of rocks near other stars. And it's just a comet. And a comet is a rock covered with ice, but then uh, uh, when it comes close to the sun, the ice uh, warms up by uh, absorbing sunlight and it evaporates, so you get a cometary tail of gas and dust around it. Uh, and Oumuamua didn't show anything uh, around it. There was no cometary tail of gas or dust and the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around it and couldn't find any traces of carbon-based molecules. So. Uh, it was clear that it's not a comet. But uh, as it was tumbling, uh, the amount of sunlight that it reflected changed by a factor of 10. And that's very extreme. Usually we get variations, but up to a factor of three or so. Um, Is that because most, most comets are more um, circular and you were assuming, and you, you theorized that this one was flat like a pancake? No, it, it, it was not a comet, irrespective of its shape, because there was no cometary tail. So it was definitely not a comet. Uh, the, the other possibility was that it's just rock. But um, and that is called an asteroid, where you just have rock without any ice on the surface. And uh, 
first, uh, it, it, it reflect the variation in the amount of reflected sunlight was much more extreme than we see usually in asteroids. Uh, and uh, second, this uh, and, and second, this variation in the light curve was most consistent with a flat object, pancake shaped, as as you pointed out, and not a cigar shaped as we've seen in many artist illustrations. So here you have a very unusual object that has an extreme shape uh, that is at least 10 times longer than it is wide based on the fact that the amount of sunlight reflected from it as it was tumbling was changing by a factor of 10. Uh, but moreover, this object, this flat object, uh, was also pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force Does that mean uh, it, acting it changed on it in direction. addition to the force of gravity. And it wasn't clear what that force is because there was no evaporation, so there couldn't be a rocket effect pushing it. And the only other force I could think of is the reflection of sunlight from the surface of this object. But in order for that to be effective, the object had to be very thin, uh, sort of like a sail being pushed by reflecting light instead of reflecting the wind. And nature doesn't make very thin objects. So I suggested that maybe it's artificial in origin in a scientific paper that we wrote. And uh, then uh, in September 2020, there was another object discovered just last year that also exhibited an excess push away from the sun without uh, showing any cometary tail. And it was due to the reflection of sunlight. And that object was identified a few months later. Um, it was discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii and given the name 2020 SO. And it was realized that it actually came from Earth. Uh, it was a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 as part of a yeah. lunar lander mission. And we know that it had very thin walls. Uh, so it was not thin because it was a light sail, but it was thin for a different purpose as a rocket booster. And then um, sunlight reflecting off it gave it a push. So we know that 2020 SO uh, is artificial because it was produced by us. But we don't know who produced Oumuamua. And Oumuamua couldn't have been produced by us because it was traveling faster than, uh, you know, it wasn't being held down by gravity because it was traveling so fast. And we don't we don't make things like that. Well, it, it was traveling faster than any rocket that we have launched in the past. And it certainly didn't come from Earth because we know what we were doing around that time. And um, we just couldn't produce an object moving so fast in the vicinity of the Earth at that time. And so, uh, what else could change the, ex the change in direction? Yeah, so the change in direction is the excess push from reflecting sunlight. And that just meant, if you assume that it's because of reflection of sunlight, meant that the object is very thin. So originally, and also in my book, I talk about it being perhaps a surface layer of a bigger object that was torn apart or maybe a light sail. But more recently, there was um, a, a report delivered to Congress by... Um, the intelligence agencies in the Pentagon, and it, it talked about uh, unidentified aerial phenomena uh, on Earth. And um, uh, if you take it seriously, I mean, they, they argue that there are some real uh, objects that, whose nature is un unknown uh, found near Earth. And if you take it seriously, then uh, perhaps, you know, they originated from uh, an extraterrestrial uh, technological civilization. And if that's the case, maybe they were deposited uh, on Earth a long time ago. And Oumuamua may have had a flat uh, shape because it was a receiver 
it was tumbling so that it can collect information from all directions. And then maybe it received some uh, information or signals from probes that were put in the inner solar system a long time ago. That's a possibility that has to be considered. So so have have you seen, um, so the, the Pentagon released, I guess, three videos, uh, two from 2004, one from 2015, showing some of this un- unidentified, you know, aerial phenomena. Have you seen any of those videos? Yeah, I've seen those videos, but you have to understand this is just the tip of the iceberg because most of the data is not being released because it was right. collected by sensors that are classified for national security reasons that are used to monitor our sky and we don't want our adversaries to be aware of all the technologies we are using uh, to defend the United States. So so, um, what we are seeing in the public domain is really not the most, uh, I would say, the most convincing uh, evidence that there is out there. And but but it looked pretty strange, the objects. I mean, they were traveling, like one, you, you hear the pilots talking, one object is traveling against wind that's going 120 miles per hour, and it was still traveling faster than them. Like, and you see these objects, and of course, it's hard to identify what they're looking at, but they look unusual. Like, if, if you were to guess they were anything other than alien of nature, what could they be? Right, so the first statement to pay attention to in the, Pentagon report is that some of the objects must be real because they were detected by multiple sensors, by infrared sensors, by optical cameras, by radar systems, and by many people seeing the same thing, doing the same thing. So that lends credibility to the idea that they are real objects and not just a malfunction of one instrument or uh, illusions of the pilots that saw them. So that's the most important statement. And then, of course, you might ask, are they human-made? Could they be produced in China or in uh, Russia or somewhere else? And um, they definitely show behavior that is not uh, in compliance with the kind of technologies we have in the U.S. So uh, if they originated in another nation, that's a major failure of our intelligence system. Uh, National intelligence should have uh, alerted us to the fact that other nations have technologies far uh, better than we we possess, and uh, I. But maybe can I can I theorize? Maybe uh, the U.S. released these videos and in order to show China and Russia that hey, we're not telling our people it's you, but we know it's you, so back off. No, they would not do that. Uh, why Why do they have to tell them? They can just react to those technologies and and make sure the U.S. is on top of them. That's all. There is no need to tell the public or to tell other nations what we know in matters of national security because you have an advantage. If you know about them and they don't know that you know about them, you have an advantage. So I don't see any benefit of making a public statement that is uh, misleading in this context. But what I do find the most likely is that indeed there are some objects that we don't fully understand. And uh, because the evidence was collected by instruments that were not designed uh, for that purpose. You know, these are cameras that were installed on aircrafts that are supposed to be in combat situations, and they are not the best cameras that we can imagine, or they are not necessarily the best uh, sensors that we can deploy. And um, therefore, uh, you know, I think this subject needs to move away from the talking points of politicians or national security advisors and military personnel to be part of the uh, scientific discussion. And um, 
um, because you wouldn't ask a plumber to bake you a cake. You know, the, those politicians or, or uh, military personnel, they were not trained as scientists and they don't have the, the best state-of-the-art instruments. So uh, what one can do is uh, basically deploy the, you know, off-the-shelf um, telescopes uh, connected to uh, cameras, connected to computers that would analyze the data. And uh, these, these would provide open data that is open to the public. Anyone can, can look at it simply because the instruments that one is using are not classified. And they would be part of a scientific uh, experiment where the data will be analyzed in a transparent way. And the public would know first whether there are real objects that behave in ways that we haven't expected. And um, moreover, you know, scientists can in principle analyze the data because it will be accessible and available. They, uh, it will not be just fuzzy videos on YouTube. Uh, and uh, and uh, that is actually, I think, an opportunity for the, for the scientists to clarify the fog and explain what the, whether these objects exist and what, what is their nature. So and actually, I'm uh, in the process of um, leading an initiative to do the, just that uh, with uh, you know, private sector funding, you know, the sky, most of the sky is not classified. We can look up. That's what astronomers do. And there is no reason for us to rely on officials to tell us what is in our sky. Yeah, that's a good idea. Why haven't, I mean, certainly now there's so many private aircraft companies. How come we haven't done something like this? Well, it's because the scientific community pretty much ignores uh, a discussion on, on unidentified objects in, in the atmosphere. And uh, at the same time, uh, the military is not equipped to do a scientific experiment and the politicians are not trained as scientists. And you get this situation where a report is delivered to Congress without sufficient evidence. And then the public is left to speculate. Um, so, and that's so, not a healthy situation. Uh, here is an example where the public cares about a question and science can uh, clear it up and uh, find the answer. And I think that's what needs to be done. So I see it as an opportunity for science to be helpful to society, just as it was in the context of the pandemic. You know, the, for the first time in human history, uh, we developed a synthetic chemical in the laboratory that uh, produced the desired immune response in uh, the bodies of hundreds of millions of people. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable success of our scientific understanding of how nature works. And it's not celebrated enough. And I think if scientists would pay more attention to other issues that are of interest to the public and basically address those issues, I think uh, there would be a better appreciation of the value of science to society. So the Pentagon report specifically said there were 144 instances between 2004 and 2021 that they really couldn't identify. And part of that means they, they asked themselves, was this created by some other U.S. agency? Um, and they confirmed that no, it was, they, they haven't been able to find any other U.S. agency that made these. They looked at, uh, is this airborne clutter? And I guess that's still a, a, an ongoing question. Like, could this have been some sort of, could any of these things been like a, a, a balloon that's falling from space or they refer to recreational unmanned aerial vehicles or airborne debris or whatever, uh, you know, they give five different categories that it that these things could be. So what do you think of that first one, airborne clutter? 
Well, no, I don't think these are the right categories from a scientific point of view. Uh, the, the correct categories are, uh, are, are these objects, well, first of all, real or not, okay? And if you decide they are real, as, as stated in the report, then there are basically three possible explanations. One is that they are human-made. And if we rule it out based on the fact that they behave in ways that are far exceeding the limits of our technologies, then you rule out the possibility that they are human-made, irrespective of whether it's in the US or elsewhere. And uh, then you are left just with two possibilities. One is that it's a natural phenomena that occurs in our atmosphere that we haven't expected, okay? And the second is that it's extraterrestrial technology that came from another civilization. And both of these would be very exciting. So I think we will learn something new by collecting more data and uh, understanding what the nature of these objects is, uh, irrespective of whether it's natural, in our atmosphere, something we haven't expected, or extraterrestrial in origin. And I should say, this is not a philosophical question that we can debate about. It's not a subject that uh, should be uh, should motivate uh, lawsuits to get classified data declassified. I mean, this is not really the, the correct approach. Uh, the, the, the correct approach is, is very simple. It's just getting a high-resolution image of a UAP. Now, one, one thing they, they figured out, though, from these cases is that all of them, or at least the ones they're focusing on in this report, as they say, it appear to display unusual flight characteristics. So, for instance, I described the one where it was going faster than the plane and it was going against the wind, and they couldn't categorize it at all. So, I mean, that's similar to how you concluded that that was perhaps extraterrestrial because it displayed unusual flight characteristics. No, no, no. It, it It's not... Okay. Oumuamua was not moving in the air. There was no wind. No, no. I'm saying it, it, it was unusual in space. It was... it it. Yeah, but, but it's a completely different sort of situation where data was collected by telescopes in the scientific way. And the UAP data was not collected in the scientific way. It was just cameras that happened to be installed on aircrafts or Navy vessels that were used by non-scientists. You know, these are pilots or Navy people that collected the data or saw something unusual. That's a very different circumstance, right? You're talking about people that were not trained as scientists to collect the data. And then someone posts it on YouTube and you ask me what happens if it goes against the wind. That is not a scientific discussion. What I need is access to the actual data. I need to know where the camera was. Was the camera jittering because of something else at the same time? And the way to figure this out is actually to do the experiment in the scientific way. The situation with Oumuamua is not at all equivalent to the situation with UAP in the sense that in the case of Oumuamua, it was a st the standard scientific instruments looking at the sky, measuring quantitatively, and we know exactly what the telescopes were doing, where they were. We had full control over the measurement process. What you see in YouTube videos is some data that was collected by some equipment whose whereabout is not known exactly. And so that is not scientific data right. and that is not available for me to analyze. And that's what I'm saying, that one should collect new data that is uh, assembled by scientific instruments 
that are fully in control. They will not jitter because they are not part of an aircraft that is supposed to behave in ways that are suitable for combat. We are not in a combat situation. We are right. using scientific instruments that actually are optimized to resolve such an object. So I was in the, let, let me just finish the thought that yeah. I started before. What we need is a high resolution image. What that means, let me give you an example. If you have an object the size of a person at a distance of a mile, okay, then with a telescope that has a diameter of one meter that you can buy off the shelf, I found one uh, online uh, a few days ago, you just click and it, you add it to your bag. It costs half a million dollars, a meter-sized telescope, right but now. it exists. You can buy it online, okay? Mm -hmm. So you click on that, you have that telescope, you look at an object the size of a person at a distance of one mile, you can resolve a millimeter, okay? Mm -hmm. And that is just standard optics, you know, Riley criterion for optics uh, uh, at a wavelength of visible light or wavelength of inf near infrared. That's what you will be able to resolve. What that means is that you can read off the label and tell the difference between made in China and made in exoplanet X. You can so tell that difference. The size of a millimeter is roughly the size of the head of a pin. So in principle, you can get a megapixel image of an object the size of a person at a distance of a mile using a one meter aperture uh, telescope. So, so I agree with you that, that these absolutely should be uh, experiments constructed by scientists, studied by scientists, because they are collecting a fair amount of data. I mean, 144 cases in the past, you know, 17 years. Well, the number of cases is irrelevant. I mean, if you use your iPhone, okay, there is this question that the debunkers of UFO reports always raise. Why are the images always fuzzy? Well, that's just standard optics that, you know, if you go to a class in optics as an undergraduate student, you will learn that when you look at the iPhone, you see uh, the size of the aperture is a few is a millimeter or a few millimeters at best. Uh, and that allows you to not to resolve a, an object uh, to the level that would not look fuzzy. You know, the, you just cannot do better than that with such an aperture that you have on the camera of, of, an, of a cell phone. So my point is you can do a thousand images from a cell phone, it wouldn't improve your knowledge because the object that you're looking at will always look fuzzy at a distance of a mile. So the number of images is irrelevant. The number of people that see something unusual is also irrelevant because most people are not able to collect enough data that will clear up the nature of the object. And it's frankly, most of the UFO reports could be a mixed bag. Most of them could be explained by some mundane explanations because the military is using some, uh, you know, uh, pieces of equipment in, in the sky and you are not aware of it. So you see something unusual. You think that it's a UFO. That's irrelevant. We don't need more than one object, just one object that we resolve very well that doesn't look like it's from this earth. And that would potentially tell us that there is another civilization. That's what we need. High quality data collected in the scientific way, in the sense that the data is open. You use instrumentation that you have full control over. And it's under 
reproducible, you can reproduce this again and again if you do the experiment again and again. And I'm not just talking about the UAP, I'm also talking about uh, objects like Oumuamua that we were talking about before. If the next one shows up on its approach to us, we can send a spacecraft equipped with a camera that will take a close-up photograph of it. And they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. You know, I wrote the book uh, Extraterrestrial on this object of Muamua, and I wouldn't need to write the book if we had a high-resolution image of the type that OSIRIS-REx, this mission uh, that was sent towards the asteroid Bennu, took. You know, it landed on the asteroid Bennu, and we can easily see that it's a rock, and it actually took a sample from that rock that it will deliver back to Earth, uh, in 2023. So here is an example where we can actually tell what an object is by getting a high-resolution photograph and taking a sample. Just imagine doing the same thing for an artificial object. Uh, you know, that would definitely tell us that it's not coming from this Earth and we could import the technology. Imagine if the technology is in our future, if it's a thousand times, uh, you know, if it's much more advanced than what we have, like if it represents our future a million years from now, that would be remarkable if we put our hands on it. It will be just like the experience of getting a, a cell phone that was not yet released to the public and, uh, you know, playing with the features that it has. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats 
to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So here's the one way it's almost not similar in that let's say I see a phone that is about to be released or will be released within the next year by Apple. Okay. It won't be that much different from my current phone. And so the question I always have is if these unidentified objects are of extraterrestrial origin, wouldn't they be so far advanced on just statistically speaking, because the universe is 13 billion years old. We've had space technology for 50, you know, 60 years, 70 years. Wouldn't the average advanced civilization be so far advanced that these objects would not be recognizable at all by us? They would just be completely different phenomena. It seems unlikely that something would be similar to any objects that we have. Yeah, yeah, you are correct. I mean, the, indeed, the 13.8 billion years elapsed since the Big Bang, and most of the stars that formed in the universe formed billions of years before the sun. So if there was a technological civilization like ours around the, another star, it's quite possible they had existed a billion years before us. And a billion years is actually a long time because our technologies evolve on a few year timescales right now. Um, so, uh, and the technologies evolve exponentially. So just imagine 
our technology a thousand years from now or a million years from now, as you say, it will be unrecognizable to us. It's just like presenting a cell phone to a caveman. The caveman would look at it and the caveman is used to playing with rocks and he would say, oh, it's just a shiny rock. So uh, uh, my point is that indeed a very advanced technology could be an approximation to God and uh, for us because it would do things that we, can, we cannot imagine. Uh, the other point I would like to make is we are most likely to establish contact with technological equipment than with uh, uh, living biological creatures. And that is because travel through space takes a long time. You know, going to the nearest star takes four years, even for light, you know, at the highest speed that any uh, material object can, can move. And uh, going across the galaxy takes tens of thousands of years for light. And that is a very long time. So, And also there are lots of um, hazards in, in, in space. Um, cosmic ray impact uh, can uh, destroy a significant fraction of our brain cells uh, within one year. So I don't think you know Darwinian evolution prepared us for uh, interstellar travel. And therefore, I think it makes much more sense to send equipment. And then uh, if we were to encounter evidence for another civilization, it will be in the form of, for example, uh, artificial intelligence system that is not communicating with its sender because it takes a huge amount of time even for light to travel the distance. So it's completely autonomous and it thinks for itself, you know, it's intelligent. So it learns from experience using machine learning and it could be more intelligent than a person. Uh, and it, it, it's basically guided by the blueprint of the sender. The sender had a goal, some purpose for making it. And if it's connected to a 3D printer, for example, it could replicate itself. It could produce more copies out of the raw materials on the surface of any planet that it uh, arrives to. And so you can imagine populating the entire galaxy with such machines, um, populating all the habitable planets within a billion years. That's enough time because in a much less than that time, you can pretty much travel the distance and then be, uh, replicate systems like that on other planets throughout the Milky Way galaxy. And if there was even one civilization advanced enough that predated us, you know, the, the equipment might be around us. Right, but uh, uh, would we, maybe the equipment would be in some form, for, for instance, we're assuming that they're traveling within normal Newtonian physics, but maybe they're going through wormhole. They're traveling. Maybe they're doing something to travel faster. What seems to us is faster than the speed of light, like going through. Well, a my point is, they don't need to travel faster than light. We don't know of anything that travels faster than light. Physics, you know, is a subject that we develop over the past century or so. That um, it appears to describe all the experiments um, that we do in the laboratories. In fact finding a deviation from what we, we've learned as the laws of physics, uh, you know, is extremely difficult. Uh, recently, there was an experiment that showed a, a slight uh, deviation of the magnetic moment of the muon from uh, something that was very difficult to calculate theoretically, and that was big news. And that's a tiny little detail. Uh, what I'm trying to say is we have a lot of experimental data, and all of it is in compliance with the laws of physics. So there is no reason for us to imagine that there is something that is completely off out there. Right, but Maybe it could there be. is, okay? 
But, but it, it uh, but could to be get t- within a, I mean, there is no reason to imagine science fiction when science itself tells you that in a billion years you can fill up the galaxy. So why do you need to travel faster than light? I'm telling you, with chemical rockets, you can populate the galaxy in a billion years easily, easily with chemical rockets. It takes 50,000 years to arrive to the nearest star. 50,000 years is such a short time compared to a billion years. Yeah. You know, so then you travel throughout the galaxy quite easily. You fill up all the regions that are of interest and there is no need to travel faster than light. There is no need for us to imagine that the laws of physics as we know them are broken. Right. So, so potentially then, uh, you're saying the, some unidentified phenomenon and we're just speculating could be sensors that were sent here and then other, you know, vehicles could be traveling around picking up the data from those sensors, you know, later, maybe thousands of years later, who knows, or maybe just a short while later. And again, I always wonder how would we, how would, you know, it was made a billion years ago by some advanced civilization, potentially. I always wonder what would it look like what, uh, as you mentioned, like the caveman to the phone, would, it wouldn't probably look like what our spacecraft looked like. It would look different. It, maybe it would not even be detectable. And, uh, you know, we have no conception of what sort of technologies would exist then. Does it seem reasonable to assume that there might be some of these phenomena that do look like rockets or planes or, you know, rocks flying through air? Why would we assume that they would look like that? Well, my point is, we are not having a philosophical discussion here. We can talk only about things we can detect. Of course, you can always say there are things we cannot see, there are things we cannot detect, but that would be equivalent to just hallucinating, okay? And I'm a physicist. I uh, am guided by evidence, okay? There is no point for us to hallucinate when there is some phenomena that appear through our detectors that look anomalous. Given those phenomena, let's try and figure out their nature, okay? We see an object like Oumuamua, let's figure out whether it's a hydrogen iceberg, nitrogen iceberg, collection of dust particles, a dust bunny, as was suggested in the scientific literature, all of which are objects we've never seen before, okay? This is one way of explaining Oumuamua as a natural object, something that we've never seen before, the size of a football field. That's one possibility. Or it's a piece of technological equipment of artificial origin. We can tell the difference very easily by coming close to the object and taking a photograph. And we don't need to discuss the possibility that the object breaks the laws of physics, goes through a wormhole, or doesn't even get detected. Why do we talk about things that are completely speculative? We just need to come close to the object and snap a high-resolution photograph that will tell us whether the object is a hydrogen iceberg, nitrogen iceberg, a dust bunny, or a piece of equipment that we didn't launch. And the same is true about UAP. So my point is, rather than making, uh, raising a lot of dust and saying we don't see anything, rather than that, let's just bring the dust down and get a clear image of these objects and figure out what they are and not talk about things that we can't see, not talk about violating the laws of physics when we don't have evidence for that. 
So how, how would you construct an experiment? Like how would you... Very simply, in the case of the UAP, I would buy uh, telescopes off the shelf. They could be of a size between 10 centimeters and a meter. 10 centimeters is something like that, up to a meter. Uh, place them in um, select locations or depending on my budget, if I have unlimited budget, I will basically place them everywhere. Uh, everywhere that, you know, where the sky is not classified. Um, and um, that, that means almost everywhere because astronomers are, you know, looking at the sky all the time. Nobody tells them, don't look at the sky, right? So I will place them throughout most of the globe and um, connect them to a suitable camera that would allow me to get the uh, desired uh, resolution. And then uh, there would be a huge data stream coming uh, through the telescope because you're talking about monitoring the sky all the time and just tiling it with uh, the field of view of that telescope. And in fact, one can start with a wide field where you would look around and for any unusual objects. And once you identify one, you start to track it as it moves across the sky. Okay, so you then you zoom onto the object and get a high-resolution image of it. And that is fed uh, to a computer system that will analyze the data. Okay, so for, for each facility of this type where you have a telescope, camera, and computer system, um, each facility of that type will do the analysis independently. And then you have a network of those in different locations. And of course, the number of such facilities depends on my budget and uh, the number of people that I can hire to be engaged in that. But that is a very doable uh, scientific experiment at a modest budget. And by modest, what I mean is that it will cost uh, more than 10 times less, you know, so 10 or 100 times less than the search for dark matter. Dark matter is most of the matter in the universe. We don't know what it's made of. It, it's made of particles that do not interact with light, and that's why it's called dark matter. It's just a label to reflect our ignorance. Uh, and the, over the past few decades, we've been searching for specific types of particles that were predicted by theoretical physicists. So they say, well, maybe it's weakly interacting massive particles, and then you know people built... Uh, instruments and detectors that were searching for those particles or searching for signatures of them in the sky, nothing was found. So even though hundreds of millions of dollars were invested, we haven't found yet what the dark matter is over a period of several decades. It's a search in the dark, and it suffers from the same uncertainties that the search for UAP suffer from. You're, you don't exactly know the nature of the thing that you're looking for. But that is part of the mainstream of astronomy, searching for the nature of dark matter. However, searching for the nature of UAP is not part of the mainstream. So what I'm saying is, at a cost that is 10 times less than the search for dark matter, we can address a question that would have a much bigger impact on society. And the reason I say a much bigger impact is, even if we find that it's human-made, because we can read off the label made in China on the surface of a UAP, even then, it would have major implications. It would mean that our national intelligence is not as good as we thought. We didn't realize that another nation is much more capable than we are. So that would be a major revelation. But if we find that it's not human-made, then it's even a bigger revelation because either we learn something new about the atmosphere that we haven't yet imagined, or we learn that we are not the smartest kid on our cosmic block.
So what in terms of the search for dark matter, who funds those hundreds of millions? Is it the government giving to universities? Yeah, well, uh, it's mostly federal agencies like the National Science Foundation or the Department of Energy that are funding research in physics and astronomy. And, and uh, why won't why they, won't they fund? Uh, the, you know, clearly this is an issue because the Pentagon just pe- uh, presented to Congress. Why won't they fund now these these UAPs? Well, or maybe they uh, one now. reason was explained in the report that was delivered to Congress that there was a stigma, uh, a taboo on discussing unusual objects, and that's why there were probably you know orders of magnitude more incidents than the 144 discussed in the report, and they were just not reported by the pilots or military personnel that. Uh, witnessed those incidents because, um, you know, they were worried about people thinking they're crazy or not willing to discuss it seriously. And so we have a small number of incidents. And actually, the Navy just established in March 2019 a policy of reporting, a a procedure for reporting. Uh, And the Air Force started it in December 2020, just recently. Before that, it was up to those military people to uh, be brave enough to come out and say, look, I've, I've seen something unusual and I want to report about it. And uh, many of them did not. And and some of them argued that they saw it again and again and again uh, on a routine basis every day or yeah. so. And uh, so it was clearly not uh, a fluke. It was not their imagination. Uh, and the question is, what is it? And uh, my point is, uh, so for many years, this was stigmatized and not taken seriously. And now the government came out with, with this report that uh, clearly says that some of these objects are real. And in fact, uh, former CIA directors, uh, Brennan and Woolsey, and former President Barack Obama uh, spoke about uh, these objects as a serious matter, not uh, something to, to joke about. And my point is that- uh, Well, why, we did are- they, why didn't Obama pursue it more? Why didn't he allocate funding towards towards this. I mean, he definitely could have without worrying about it. Oh, Alexa doesn't understand me. (laughs) Yeah, it's on my Apple Watch. Uh, Nothing to do with aliens. Um, (laughs) um, Well, um, that's a good question. And I think politicians are very reluctant to discuss this topic because of the stigma. Okay. And um, I think now we are at a different point where the subject should move away from uh, uh, the the arena of politics and the military into uh, the realm of science. And uh, uh, as long as scientists do not shy away from it and ridicule it, and I'm establishing a research group that will look into that and collect new evidence because, you know, science is about reproducibility of results. You are not just relying on eyewitness testimonies, you want to actually reproduce the results using your instruments, and then you trust the evidence. You know, there is this biblical story about Abraham uh, hearing the voice of God, telling him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And if Abraham had a cell phone with a voice memo up, he could have pressed the button and the story would have been much more believable if we heard the recording. Uh, Otherwise, if you rely on eyewitnesses, you never know whether to trust them. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, lawyers tell me that in, in the courtroom, if you have uh, two witnesses that with corroborating uh, testimony, that, that could put a person in, in jail. And uh, although it works in the legal system, it doesn't work in science. In science, you have to rely on instruments. 
that's a, that's a major distinction from the legal system. So, so what I really want is to reproduce the evidence for unusual objects and have a much higher fidelity for that evidence so, so that it would become clear. And, and, and it's not a complicated matter. All you want is a very uh, high-resolution megapixel image of such an object. Right. And that's so, something so you can we can afford at a, re, a modest cost that is much less than the amount of money that was spent on the search for dark matter. What about what about a guy like Jeff Bezos? So he's got over two hundred billion dollars now. Clearly, he could fund this, and he's also interested. You know, he's got Blue Origin is a his his spacecraft company is going to fly in outer space. He, I'm sure, someone like him. Why 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 don't these billionaires? What are they doing with their money? This would be a good thing to uh, to fund with just a few hundred million dollars. Good point. And indeed, I was over the past week approached by um, a few billionaires, and um, and um, there is some uh, promising uh, avenues to follow on that. And I would uh, love to have uh, Jeff Bezos uh, involved as well. So, you know, I, I, it's not easy to approach him, but. I hope he listens, and we will try to communicate uh, with him as well. Um, so any billionaire out there, if you're interested, now is the right time because we are establishing this research initiative. And how long would it take you to set up the initiative? Oh, it's a matter of weeks, I would say. Really? Yeah. I mean, you could just get the telescopes out there and, and working and oh, collecting no. data? In terms of starting the project with team members, but then... Uh, Actually, deploying the—I mean, purchasing the instrument, deploying them, and equipping them with what what's needed—that that will take longer. And uh, you know, at first, we will need to make sure that the everything works the way we want it, and develop the software necessary. So that you know, that could take months, uh, depending on how complicated the task would be. But it's the standard procedure in setting up a, a scientific experiment. You know, it takes some time to. Uh, get the instrumentation to work to the level that that you want it to work, and um, you know I I, I receive a very uh, positive reception to that that uh, this initiative from a lot of people, including uh, people who suggested to use platforms that are not necessarily just um, on, uh, on 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 the ground, but also perhaps uh, in, in, uh, offshore, you know, uh, in in the ocean and. Uh, so altogether, I, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we will be able to collect an interesting data set and exactly how much time it would take will depend on uh, how quickly we get the instruments to work to the quality that we want them to work. Well, uh, Professor Avi Loeb, I, I, I wish you success. I want to... I don't. I actually don't want to know if they're... I, I hope they're not made by the Chinese or the Russians. I want them to be extraterrestrial and... Just once in my lifetime, learn something that transcends by a far amount all the knowledge we currently have. There's something. I know you read it. You wrote in the article that you you don't read science fiction stories, but there's something there's something exciting about reaching beyond anything we could have hoped to have learned. Yeah, and that's what you're trying to do. My point is, it's a win-win proposition. If you collect more evidence and something looks unusual, you know, even if it's it's not extraterrestrial technologies. You will learn something new about nature because you haven't expected yeah. it. That's true in the case of Oumuamua because we will learn about these nurseries that make objects that we've never seen before, like, you know, nitrogen iceberg, hydrogen iceberg. We've never imagined such things. We never imagined that they would be more common than rocks. 
And if it happens to be the case, we learn something new uh, because the solar system then is not typical. And then uh, if we see these UAP and they happen to be some rare atmospheric phenomena that we've never imagined, that's also something important that we, we can benefit from. Uh, of course, if uh, any of these relate to some uh, equipment that came from an extraterrestrial technological civilization that is far more advanced than we are, then the benefits would be far greater. I'm sure there would be entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that would change their focus once we realize there is another technology that you know belongs to our future. I, I hope so. I, and I, and, and I, again, I wish you, wish you luck. When you've got some data, come on back on and we'll, we'll, we can examine it maybe. Yeah. And Just one last comment. I, I yeah. think um, the quality of the data and the scope of this initiative will depend very much on, on the amount of funds that we are able uh, to raise uh, from the private sector. So, See, if I had $100 billion, like a lot of these guys do now, it costs nothing. It's no, like a drop yeah, in the this bucket is for them. Really, I mean, I'm talking about level of um, what we really need to get the, the best data that we, we, we want is tens of millions of dollars, maybe up to a hundred, but, but we don't need more than that uh, in order to be the most ambitious uh, in, in, in collecting the necessary data, the most yeah. ambitious. Uh, we are not there yet. And uh, I would very much uh, welcome any interest from a person that can afford that. All right. Well, all my listeners are listening. And there's probably a couple of billionaires out there here. This is something to put your money towards. So thank you once again, uh, Professor Loeb, for coming on the podcast and talking about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Thank you so much, James. I had a great time. Thank you. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.